0: I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Lee Ann Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Our guest today is Kim annenberg Cavallo. She's the founder and CEO of Little Space, a company that enhances relationships in the digital age. With 25 years' experience in event planning, connecting people to causes, and raising money for -for not-for-profit organizations, Kim began to focus on what would motivate us to put away our phones and practice being present The Little Space app encourages this so people can earn rewards, support causes they care about, and focus on what matters most in life. She's dedicated the past 20 years of her life to connecting people to movements that she's passionate about and that make a difference. She is co-founder of the Los Angeles Jewish Film Festival, successfully operating in Los Angeles for more than 12 years. Additionally, she co-founded an experiential education program where high school and college students develop relationships with Holocaust survivors through storytelling while baking bread. When Kim puts away her phone, she loves doing yoga, riding at SoulCycle, hiking, and traveling in addition to spending time with her husband, two adult sons, and their huge circle of friends. So
1: let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Kim Cavallo. Where are you from? Born and raised in Los Angeles. I'm actually a third generation born in Los Angeles. Are you like the fifth person that was actually born in Los Angeles? (laughs) I think so. I think so. Yeah. My grandfather actually was uh, one of the fifth of five children. And he, his, his siblings were born in Chicago. He was born in Los Angeles in Boyle Heights on a chicken farm. Wow.
0: Yeah. So you were born in L.A. I was. Have born you in ever LA. lived anywhere else, or you've just stayed here the whole time? I've pretty much
1: stayed here the whole time. I've spent, you know, summers when I was in college. I took a lot of advantage of kind of you know programs to do things abroad. I did an internship in New York one summer. I, I studied in London one summer. I spent one summer in India actually, uh, in my early adult life studying yoga. Wow. So I've done kind of chunks of time in other places. but So let's talk about something else that I know is important to you in
0: your life because yeah. you're very dedicated to your Jewish heritage. Yes. And you spend a lot of time um, in your life today. And there's a lot of history with you in that. And I would ask you to talk a little bit about your point of view on this and why you spend so much of your time on this now.
1: Well, in terms of being committed kind of to helping the Jewish community and and being passionate about Jewish education, you know, I didn't grow up with, I mean, my family was very secular, definitely was Jewish, but had no, you know, religious training really, except for bat mitzvah training, which, you know, I actually asked for. My parents didn't even really say it was necessary. And I never dated anyone that was Jewish. My husband's not Jewish. And so we had kids everything seemed to be fine and i had walked into a tour of a preschool and saw it was a jewish happened to be a synagogue every little kids wearing the kippot and you know they're singing jewish songs and i burst into tears out of nowhere and i mean prior to that i didn't do celebrating any any holidays we had had christmas trees i didn't you know it was i never thought about it so essentially i think it was some kind of just surge of You know, a connection to my heritage that I just had forgotten about, or you know, just wasn't connected to. And so we were actually on the cover. Rob and I were on the cover of the Jewish Journal. I don't know if uh, if you've ever seen that. No,
0: but I know I read the Jewish Journal. I I probably this was
1: decades ago, but uh, it was essentially our conservative rabbi who had been counseling us through trying to get us to have a marriage that was in balance uh, from. You know, he he didn't sign up for it when I had this kind of awakening. He ta- he talks about it as if I had this giant juice switch, he calls it, like all of a sudden it just turned on. <laughs> and, you know, I had gone from I don't care about any of this to this really matters to me. And, uh, you know, he is not any particular, follow any particular religion. So, and he's not, he doesn't love organized religion. So that was kind of where our interfaith conflict came. I said I didn't want a Christmas tree anymore. All of a sudden out of nowhere after 20 years of having a Christmas tree. And the, uh, the conservative rabbi advised us to keep the Christmas tree, which was a huge deal back then. Now it's not that big of a deal. But back then, it was enough of a deal that they put it on the cover of the Jewish Journal and that, you know, this conservative Jewish rabbi is telling this couple to keep a Christmas tree in their house. So I just had felt all along that, you know, I love my husband. I love the life we had. And I was raising these two boys, and I just felt this connection to the idea that all these People had been fighting to stay Jewish all of these years, you know, centuries. And who was I to kind of break that lineage? Um, and having sons, I felt like, well, they could marry anyone, and then those grandchildren wouldn't be Jewish, and then there it ends. Um, right. You know, and that, that didn't bother me as much because I don't feel like I wanted to have control over what they were going to be. But it made me really passionate about education and helping other families. Kind of bring Judaism into their lives in a positive way, so that it's not fascinating.
0: You know, I was at uh, APAC recently, which mm-hmm. is I went to my first trip to APAC. Wow! Yeah, and uh, my I was telling. Can you explain what APAC is for the uh, audience? The Ameri- Thank you. it's a good question. American <laughs> Israel Political Action Committee, and they are incredibly informative. Like when you go there, you're like, I really didn't know what to expect. I certainly did not expect there to be thousands and thousands of people and room after room after room after room of intelligent, fascinating conversation going on about what Jewish people are doing and what Israel is doing and how the American government... And the uh, Israeli government have aligned to create um, strategic relationships that help develop science and arts and you know education and everything. And then, of course, we all know the statistics that the that Jewish people have dominated the number of Nobel Peace Prizes that have been won. And you know, clearly, there's a lot of intellectual capacity inside of this. I am stunned by the compression of the Jewish population. And I have read statistics, I don't want to quote them to be a fact, but I have read that the number of Jewish people worldwide is less than 25 million people. And so this is a minuscule amount of the population, and it garners so much anti-Semitism around the world. Yeah. And um, when I went to APAC, I was obsessed over the BDS movement. For our listeners, the uh, Boycott, Diversify, and Sanction Against Israel movement has taken on a life of its own. And the anti-Semitism that goes on in the world today is raging again. And it's horrible. Yeah. It's absolutely horrible. So my sons are now marrying. And my two my one son is married. My one son is getting married. And neither of them are marrying Jewish girls. And when I asked them, I didn't have strong feelings about this, but when I asked them, what, how are you going to raise your children? Will there be religion in your household, first of all? And second of all, what will what will they be? If there is if that answer to that question is yes, how will you raise them? And they both both girls have said that they intend to run their, raise their children Jewish, but they're both going to have a Christmas tree in their house. Right. And so it's similar to your story. Yeah. And my third son is dating a Jewish girl, and my fourth son is dating a Jewish girl. So it'll be interesting to see. But religion. Is such a complicated conversation because there's so much evil around religion. Yes. yes. And there's so many people that hate you for one reason or another. Yeah. I always think that if
2: there wasn't that, everybody would get along much better. Yeah. You've really dedicated yourself to a life of service in a way and through businesses, really. What were the first sort of signs of that? When did you first recognize within yourself that you had this potential to be, to bring? you know, community, business, and be, become a catalyst for service?
1: Really early on, I was the kid in elementary school that was organizing cleanups on the playground and, you know, writing little vignettes so we could all, you know, do plays together while it was recess time. I, I don't, I'm not sure where it came from. It's mm-hmm. just, a, I guess, a personality trait. <laughs> um, and, you know, a I also- other of boys. Yeah, I've, I've just, I've always been really uh passionate again i think i like i said for connecting people yeah. to things that they care about did and, that
2: always feel like a blessing or did it sometimes feel like a little bit of a? oh there's
1: definitely times where i mean i i had done i uh, was the president of a board of, of a small school that had many struggles you know over time and there were moments uh where I was definitely in a fetal position or in a prayer position, just saying like, "What? What do you want me to do?" Like, okay. I'm not really sure how to make this work. And leadership is lonely, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you know, you're responsible uh, for everything, but nobody really, you know, necessarily appreciates necessarily. I mean, I don't do it for the appreciation. And you've
2: done both. You've done leadership in these organizations Mm -hmm. as well as entrepreneurship, and both of them can be quite solitary. Yes.
1: Yeah, which is interesting because I talk so much about community and connection, and yet I choose to spend my time doing things in a very... Solitary way. Mm-hmm. I think that's a control thing. To be real, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just because you know it's easier to get things done and get them done the way you want them done if, uh-huh. if you're doing them yourself. We all recognize uh, that in ourselves, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, and I think the entrepreneurship comes from you know you're you're touching on something because I definitely felt the frustration in the nonprofit world. Fundraising is very difficult. You have to convince people to part with their money, and you know to care about something that maybe they never thought about before. And mm-hmm. it just was always very frustrating to me because you know you would try to you know get people engaged, and they would act like they were engaged, and then it would never actually follow up. With a lot the of track. talking, a lot yeah, of yeah. yeah, and so I always you know was the person in the room saying like, "Can't we sell something? Like, can't we make our destiny our own? Can't we do something that makes it so that?" The income that we bring to this important cause is a little more in our control. And so that's where kind of the ideas for me came in of mixing business with nonprofit. And then unbeknownst to me, like there's a lot of people that do that. So I mean, sure. there's B corporations which I just learned about, yeah. and I just joined the chapter of Conscious Capitalism. Yeah, which I'm really excited
2: about. It's, it's a huge area right now because there is so much need, and there's so much, um, you know, there are so many gaps in in um, access. Yeah, particularly because of technology. I mean, technology can help that, but also technology is very existence and yeah. the fast cycle of. Up, upgrading and stuff can, can yeah uh, put put a separation in there you studied sociology i find that very interesting because it sounds like your path has been one that was much more business or, or public administration you know like i mean it's it's a very it's interesting how yeah did sociology how did that become your focus I, in school
1: yeah i think sociology was really my way of getting a general studies degree mm-hmm. um i didn't know what i wanted to do mm-hmm. i had no idea what you know, it's it's kind of the difference, I think, between the kids that are going to college today and the way that um, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it was I didn't really have an idea. I just knew I was going to college. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so at least I had it within me to say, OK, well, I want to make this worth it. So, you know, I went to right. the co- counselor and I said, OK, show me all the different you know options and sociology allowed me to take poli sci and anthropology and history and it was the broadest probably it really was yeah, yeah. and great. then i had a i had a business uh they called it an emphasis at ucla mm-hmm. so that makes sense yeah. that makes so, sense yeah so um yeah and it was i was i've just always been curious i felt like sociology history and poli sci were kind of all the same thing mm-hmm. a study of people mm-hmm. it was just people in the past people in the present people governing themselves
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> So along the way, mm-hmm. you met the man you're married to. Yes, who both of you have a very entrepreneurial spirit and an entre- entrepreneurial vibe. Tell us a little bit about your early days and uh, your husband. Just for our listeners, is a very very successful music producer. Yes, super creative guy, and um, you you fit together so beautifully. You get along so well with each other. Tell us a little bit about that. Where did your paths cross?
1: Um, Yes, well, it was not always that way that we got along so beautifully. But um, our paths crossed. I was 19 and he was 21. um, And uh, actually, I was dating his best friend at the time.
2: (laughs) You're not the first Uh, person sitting in that chair who said those words. I know. I have a funny (laughs)
1: feeling. He ended up being, the best friend ended up being the best man at our wedding. So things worked out okay. that's nice. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was one of those things I— I saw him that the best friend, you know, didn't really play it right because he all three dates that we had. He took me to either my husband, current husband now Rob's house, or he brought Rob along on the date. So I'm not really sure. I think he was trying to set us up. Um, but that first date when we went to Rob's house, you know, it was one of those things. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but it was like I walked in the room and I wasn't high or anything, but I felt like the room started spinning. And it was like, you know, Rob That's was just so sitting lovely. there. It was I a really, yeah, it was a really powerful feeling. Um, I don't think he had the same feeling because <laughs> well, we talk about it. And he was like, yeah, I saw you, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but um, no, before. I really, I felt super connected to him. Um, you know, and then you find out, my mom was a therapist. so So you find out reasons why there's energetic connection between people. And it's like, you know, trying to work out kind of things from your childhood. So we really did fit together really well just because of how the two of us were raised and what we um, what we needed to work out, you know, the things we needed to kind of move through. How long have you been married? We've been married 20, it'll be 26, 27 years. How long did you date? Uh, we dated for six years before that. So we, we our first date was December 13th, 1985. So you've been together a long time. Yeah. I think both of us are super. I mean, you talk about entrepreneurial speed, spirit or kind of the creativity, and the it's really the tenacity that we're very well matched in that. You yeah, know, I have a
0: thesis on that anyway. I, I really believe that there are millions of times in people's marriages where they're ready to throw it in, yeah, and just say, okay, this isn't working for me. But I think if you stick through those moments and just let them go, right. Things work themselves out, they come back around. Yeah. And people who I know and in my business who I've met many times that want to get divorced and this and that, and I say, just give just just give it a minute. Right. And in in almost every instance, when I've said to somebody, just give it a minute, uh, and I'm not taking credit for them not divorcing, but it's true. Just wait a minute. Um, and then think about it, because what are you going to trade? You know, you're trading one pile of whatever for right. another pile <laughs> <Right>. of whatever. <laughs> <Right>. And <laughs> wow. you know, there you go. Um now in 2006 you co-founded the Los Angeles Jewish Film Festival. Yeah. What was the impetus for you to start that festival and and bring us to today?
1: I had been uh, nominated uh for a program called the Wexner Heritage Foundation and that's something where you spend 2 years uh in a cohort of 20 people. Um you know thousands of people apply, you get down narrowed down to 20 people. They make the it very um you know, they have how many women, how many men, how many people who are in conservative reform, and they put you together and you study together with famous rabbis and teachers from all over the world for two years. Uh, Les Wexner is the person I'm who puts limited. it together, yeah. Um, and his foundation basically funds everything. You end up going on a culmination trip to Israel. Anyway, it's a, it's a leadership training program in, in a sense, even though that's not what they say it is. Um, and so when I came back, uh, everyone in the community who runs different organizations knows that you just finished this. Um, and Les Wexner starts every um, kind of speech that he says to you as a cohort with this idea that like, you know, it's the law of thirds. I believe that, you know, only a third of you are going to do something with this education that I'm giving you. Um, and this, you know, so of course, everyone in that room in general says, well, I'm going to be, you know, one of those I'm people. Right. Those, yeah. So I came back to LA and one Person, uh, a guy named Jack Mayer, who was running the Jewish Community Center at the time, came to me and he said, "Did you know that that Los Angeles is the only city in North America that doesn't have a Jewish film festival? (laughs) The only big city, the only big city." Um, And he needed to say to you, yeah, (laughs) and you know, and I was so curious why, and I thought, wow, we're the capital of entertainment, like how is that possible? So. Uh, My co-founder, Michelle Kaufman, and I just went out. We had a lot of connections in entertainment. So we went to go talk to people who were super philanthropic in Jewish community and in other areas and big in the entertainment industry. And they basically said, nope, there's a wall. Like, we don't mix the two. Um, this has changed obviously in the past 13 years, but we had someone from the Jewish journal say to us, uh, you know, you're never going to, this is never going to work in Los Angeles. Don't even try it. You're a just going to have. A film festival in LA is wow, not going to Yeah. Yeah. A oxymoron. Jewish film festival. A Jewish film festival yeah. in LA. Yeah. They said, you're just going to have, you know, a lot of senior citizens that are not going to pay for tickets and what, you know, I mean, it was just very discouraging from every angle. And we had this amazing executive director who who was a filmmaker herself. Her name's Hilary Halstein. Um, she's made a, a great film about uh, it was uh, artists that survived the Holocaust through their art. I mean, literally like Mengele handpicked a 14-year-old girl who was a sketch artist and was she was able to live because she became his personal sketch artist for some of the terrible things that he did. But um, wow. So she she chronicled their stories. And so she became our executive director. And the three of us, you know, built a team of about probably 10 people at the time. All uh, volunteer? All volunteer. We went to Atlanta together to try to see. They had a thriving film festival. And we went there to try to see what it was all about. And learned about how to organize volunteers and how to connect to theaters. And, and today? Today, there's, you know— Thousands of people. They had. We just had it last closed on Wednesday night, and it's a week long uh, festival. That it basically the the idea is it just celebrates Jewish characters and themes in film. And are you uh, still involved? Yeah. Oh yeah. I was. Wow. uh, Where
2: where does it? Uh, where do the films show? Uh,
1: uh, mostly at the Lemley theaters. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, they're a partner of ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have some of the some other theaters that we use as well.
0: Is it a not-for-profit?
1: It's a nonprofit. Yeah, but but it's not a nonprofit on its own. So the Jewish Journal now, interestingly, is now the the presenting <laughs> organization. Um, they've had leadership changes as well, and so um, they've been the le- the presenting organization. I think for at least the last five years. Wow. Um, yeah. And so now, you know, there's obviously thousands of people. And, you know, uh, my main motivation at the time for starting it, and it's my reason for staying involved, is I just love the idea that that it connects generations. You know, a granddaughter could go see the same film with her grandmother and both relate to it, go out to dinner afterwards, talk about it, um, that it crosses over denominations, you know, that people from all walks of Jewish life, all walks of life in general can come in. I mean, we just had a program on Wednesday that I – um, volunteered at that was uh, about the, the Congo and uh, Jewish World Watch was the sponsor and these kids that had been living in the Congo and couldn't even get educated became part of this organization that brought them here and they went to high school in San Juan Capistrano and then they spoke after the film and I mean, it's just really, really powerful stuff. Wow. There was a whole film about, um, you know, how con- the Congo is a rape capital of the world and so they have a whole program where they educate men because they were showing that this is a vicious cycle and that we want to connect. So it was a whole documentary. It was called um, Sons of Congo.
2: And yeah. And that's not the only program that you created to sort of create community. You mm-hmm. were talking about, you know, grandchildren with our grandmothers sharing the experience of right. film. You created another one that's much more sort of grounded yeah. in, in literally breaking bread. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we named it Ladova Doe. Uh, which is uh, a spin off the, you know, Jewish um it's a prayer, but also the concept of Lador Vador, which is means from generation to generation. So we made a play obviously on the on, the on the I word. When I read that I thought yeah. of oh, that so cute. It's, um, an, it's an
2: inside joke. I mean, most people who aren't Jewish would not they get would not it at know, all. but they at yeah. least
1: they see the word dough, so you yeah. <laughs> get the idea. But um There's dough in there. Yes. Yeah. Uh But yeah, we, we started it just in, uh, in Agora Uh, Westlake high school is one of our, our, you know, participants, but we started again. It was the kind of thing there was probably about 10 people in the room, five survivors, five teenagers. And, um, you know, our main mission uh, was to connect these two generations. And especially because there was these stories of resilience and, you know, sadly you know, the teenagers of today don't have access to many experiences that give them grit. And so, you know, putting these two you know types of people together in a room giving them an activity something that they are doing with their hands while they're talking so what just brought what out is that,
2: what does that look like okay they come into the room yeah they
1: come into the room um we have the dough already made so it's not about mixing ingredients mm-hmm. so that because that gets messy and takes a long time so we have the dough already made we had this wonderful family that started with us that would come and bring big bowls with the you know towels on top of it and um, you know, put we put balls of dough in the middle of tables and we we strategically place, you know, we we learn we learned about the teenagers and their personalities over time. Some are a little more shy, some you know, instant, you know, initiate conversation. So we would strategically put people at tables. We'd have usually one survivor at each table. Um, we usually had some kind of conversation starter. Um, so it was something like, you know, uh, what are your who were your favorite teachers? And the interesting thing or what kinds of gifts or how would you celebrate your birthdays or just things like that. And the interesting thing is was to hear how for some of the survivors, you know, a lot of these particular survivors because of their age were babies or young children and usually hidden or given to other families. And so their trauma comes from, you know, being separated from their families. And then some of the trauma comes from thinking that the one family is their family and then being picked up by random You know, cousins. And then because of the way life was back then, they wouldn't talk about what was going on. So, you know, the cool part was listening to the conversation where a teenager would learn, well, I didn't celebrate my birthday for five years, um, you know, or I never went to school because I didn't have the opportunity um, or I remember before the Holocaust or before the war, this is the way we celebrated the, our birthdays, and I remember that so fondly. And mm-hmm. um, it was just you know, great to see all those wow. conversations and friendships develop. I mean, we had one young man who became really friendly with a 90, 90-year-old survivor, and she told the story of how her brother was taken from the home. He was 14. The brother was 14. She was 17. He was taken. She never saw him again. And so there was a lot of tears in this table conversation. And afterwards, this young boy who was going to be having his bar mitzvah said, I would like to honor your brother at at my bar mitzvah, which is going to be in a few weeks. And so he invited this new friend, new 90-year-old friend that he had he made. And mm-hmm. she came and was able to talk about her brother and say his name at the ceremony. And it was just, you know, yeah. so touching.
2: It's just such a beautiful through line of community. Yeah. And, and it feels like it connects very much to the business. Yeah. Wow. That's gonna make me cry. I know. <laughs> I'm like a little bleary eyed
0: over
1: here. <laughs> yes.
0: Or verklempt.
1: What's it? So, say yes.
0: Yes. <laughs> I've known you a long time, but about, um, I'm going to say two years ago, Mm -hmm. maybe, Yeah, um, we started talking about the project that you're working on today, which is, I thought then and think even more now, is so cool. And I'd love to have an opportunity to talk to you about this. And Leanne, Leanne and I have a million questions to talk to you about. Um, and so here we are in the present. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we were around 2016. We started talking about this. Yes. And it, you took a little space from a concept to where it is today. Yes. So let's talk about little space, and make sure I'm pronouncing it
1: correctly. Yes, little space. Yeah, it's a uh, one word, no spaces in between. L i l s p a c e. Yeah. I mean, in 2016, it was really out of my own you know, just frustration with my phone. I was really irritated that, uh, that I had this kind of, you know, almost like a third hand following me everywhere and getting, you know, yeah. And it was, you know, the, the, I think the most frustrating part to me was that you somehow, we all became uh, expectant of each other, that immediate responses were what, you know, uh, what we needed from each other. Um, And that was that that caused a lot of pressure. And it also created this illusion of control, like like my kids somehow, if they could text me that they got into a car accident, that miraculously, you know, it was going to get better when the truth is, is that I had a car accident when I was a kid and I didn't have a cell phone and I figured out how to manage. And, you know, it was a bumper, you know, not a big car accident, but these fears that we walk around with and this illusion that somehow having the device turned on and checking it all the time is going to be the solution to every problem. Um, That was, you know, that was what was frustrating me at the time. Um, Just this, this weird feeling and connection to my cell phone. And um, obviously I, found out i wasn't alone um but in 2016 when we started talking about it there wasn't that much conversation um or at least not publicly about kind of uh what what smartphones mobile devices were doing what all these social media apps were doing
2: in terms of the social yeah the implications the
1: the the you know fallout, really, from all of this. The, the mental health crisis that, you know, they've seen, you know, a spike in anxiety and depression since 2012. And it's not a coincidence that that's when smartphones became, you know, more available to more people. And we started doing everything on our smartphones. We're doing our banking, we're doing our communication, we're doing our any kind of, uh, you know, that's, it's our camera now. It's I mean, it's everything it's um, been
0: such a brief amount of time in the history yeah. of time too Yeah, yes. that this has gone on yes. and um, when we first started talking about this and you know i really want to have our listeners understand how important this topic of conversation is yes and and um, we, we when we first sat down we started talking about this in in my family and i have an extremely close relationship with my children And my husband and I, we frequently have family dinners. We live in a no-phone zone. There's no chance you're sitting at the table with your phone next to your dinner plate. Right. Um, I don't care if it's sitting there, but I do care if you're looking at it. That's so great. And I do care if you're having conversation on it. And um, so when you first talked to me about the concept of what you were doing, and I really want you to – drive this point home by exactly what it is that you're doing yeah. and how I believe that you're setting a trend for something that could easily become a national
1: point of view because there's so many people that are annoyed by this and frustrated by this. Yes. Little Space is an app that is the core feature is a timer. You use the timer so that you can have the intention to put away your phone and that that time counts for uh, you know, either raising money for a, p- a nonprofit, the cause that you care about or for getting a reward for yourself. So um, that's essentially what Little Space is. And that came from, uh, you know, basically the, the in- initial feeling of the frustration for myself of wanting to find a way to motivate myself to put away the phone. I couldn't figure out what mattered to me enough to put away the phone. And I could say, "Oh, I'll put it away because I'm in a, fa- I'm at a dinner-, dinner." But it didn't, it didn't stop the crazy little impulses in my head that were saying, "There's something important for you on the phone." And so I just was trying to figure out for myself what would motivate me. So we've talked a lot about, you know, how I'm motivated by being connected to other people and building community. So for me, knowing that I was going to help someone else seemed like a motivating factor. Um, there are a lot of solutions out there for this problem right now um a lot of them are centered around their apps that block you from using your phone there's apps that monitor you um and tell you how much time you're spending on this thing or that thing um there are uh apps that change the interface of your entire phone so it becomes less enticing um we're I taking i don't know
0: i know anything about this can you expand on that a little bit this is the first i've heard that
1: yes. Give me an example of, uh of... so there's an app uh actually great group of guys. Uh, It's called Ciempo. They just uh, launched and it's Android only. I I mean, I don't know how much you want me to get into the technical side of things. So I found out early on with, uh, I don't know if you, your son Jordan and I uh, worked together because the initial um, thought, I didn't know how I wanted to solve the problem. So my initial thought was, well, if you could communicate while you weren't available, that's going to solve the problem. Um, so I want to make kind of a little answering machine out of your phone. I want it to be that if somebody texts you that, that an automatic reply will bounce back and tell somebody that you're not available. And amazingly, that didn't exist. I found out why it didn't exist, uh, pretty quickly, which is, uh, which is because for iPhone, it will not happen at least for right now. And it wouldn't, wasn't going to happen in 2016, the way that they have, um, they have a closed network. So you can't, as a programmer, get into iMessage. You can't have something, you can't program it so that the the text will automatically reply. It's nothing malicious. It's like they've, they're very protective of, of the privacy of their, you know, the people that have their iPhones and they want to make sure that that other apps can't take over your phone. So there's reasons for it. Um, Android, on the other hand, has a very open system and a lot of sharing going on between engineers and codes written and people share it. and
2: Open uh, source. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And so um, it makes it so that we were able to create uh, this auto-reply um, feature. Uh, and so we created um, just a very simple, minimal viable product. It really literally just turned on and off. And we were just setting out to see if people would use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did, you know, we were able to, um, connect with a marketing company that preloaded them onto giveaway phones. And so 10,000 people got those phones and we saw that like nobody, um, erased it. Nobody deleted it. A lot of people used it for a long time. The problem with the way we set it up was we didn't, it was such a minimal product that we didn't create profiles for anyone. So I had no email addresses. I had no information. You were
2: collecting I wasn't collecting anything. I, yeah, yeah right.
1: I just set out to, to decide whether or not this worked and saw it worked, but then I couldn't really do very much after that. So from there, I started realizing, well, you know, I think what's going to happen is this is the this is a utility and people are going to, you know, uh, engineers are going to build it into other things, probably into phones. And, you know, that's not going to be very attractive or interesting uh, as a solution. So what again, what is it that I can bring to the table? And it just brought me back to, well, I, I know how to build community. Um, I know that change for myself has always come. Any kind of healthy change I've ever made in my life has come become, because I've had a sense of community and a connection to people that were doing a similar change. And so that's when we came up with the idea of, okay, this, this could be more of a platform, a reward platform, uh, a social impact platform, a way for us to you know turn everything upside down to say, being on your phone, scrolling through Instagram, that's not where it's at. Mm-hmm. Where it's at is putting away your phone, being in real time, you know, having real connections. And by the way, your phone can be timing you and giving you something, mm-hmm. you know, really impactful. It could mm-hmm. either help something, helps a cause you really care about, or give yeah, you, you the, know, a discount. The
2: combination is such a novel one. I, I don't, I mean, I've been following some of these things because I have a 15 year old son who is not a social media kid mm. who wants to start the human conversation club at his school. Oh, I I need to meet him. (laughs) Yeah, no, you (laughs) guys do need to meet each other. And it's very interesting because he's like, nobody is looking at each other Mm -hmm. and talking to each other. And he's just, for whatever reason, never kind of caught caught the bug for Snapchat or Instagram or any of that stuff. And for him, he tries to have conversations and people just don't want to do it. Wow.
1: And how proactive of him, especially at that age, because... The the isolation is
2: well, and that's the problem. He's isolated, yeah, and he feels like, "What's wrong with me that I can't get a conversation going?" And it's just that he's on a different kind of wavelength, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, Snapchat, in particular, they did not set out to do something evil, but they what's happened is it's become this. I don't know if you guys are familiar with streaks.
2: Yeah, I know. Yeah,
1: so I mean, it's essentially they've set it up so that you get. It's not even a reward. There's no nothing that you get except that you get this kind of social currency that you've had interaction with a particular person back and forth for a certain number of times. So if I texted you a photo and you and you Snapchat back me a photo and we do it back and forth, there's this you know, badge or something that shows up that shows that you've had 150 streaks. And so as a teenager and an adolescent, you're so worried about whether or not you're going to break the streak. There's been stories of of people being ostracized, kids being ostracized. You broke the streak. I don't talk to you anymore. And, you know, and I don't know about you guys, but that's not new. Like I remember going to high school or, or middle school, and you know, showing up, and it's like you're wearing the wrong shoes, and we're not talking to you today. And you know, I mean, that kids are mean. Mm-hmm. That's not yeah, changed. it's
0: a Different kind of mean, though. Yeah.
2: Well, you it's know? a permanent mean. Uh, you know, it's yeah, it's, 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 it's it lives on, mean. and it's just to me, it's just another thing to find fault with a, another little human being about.
0: So your concept was the original concept of this is ironically, yes, on the, the street. street, yes. <laughs> talk about so you thought about this in your own self right thinking about how to put your phone down yes and then so from there take us from there
1: so, yeah, so then um, I just thought about, well, what, what kind of thing would, would make it so that, you know, like I said, to motivate me and then it seemed like it would motivate others. And when you think of kind of this age group, you know, it's not my target necessarily, adolescents and teenagers, but they are, they are socially conscious and they do want to raise money and awareness for causes that they care about. This is the good part of, of technology is, and, and social networking. They have the belief in themselves that they can make a difference. So your son deciding he wants to start this club, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like – he has the understanding that he can do that, yeah. you know, and that's because he's seen, you know, globally, you know, this, the kinds of things be built, yeah. you know,
2: and yeah. movement started. The, the you know. cadence of it is much faster because they can congreg- congregate right. over social media. Right, right. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I think the power of technology is great. I've never been, I've never said anything other than, you know, let's just harness it in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. Taking breaks is important. And so what's happened since we started, Started talking in 2016, and this was happening way before, you know, a few years before. There's somebody that you know, if anybody knows of this and is listening to this podcast, they'll know this name, Tristan Harris, and he is uh, a guy that was. They call him a visionary and a whistleblower. He essentially was a Google design ethicist, came out of Stanford. A lot of his background is in he was in the the persuasive uh, persuasion lab at Stanford. And he was always very, you know, he talks about, you know, if you research him, you'll find out he uh, talks about as a kid, he was a magician. So he was always understanding kind of how persuasion works. And as a designer and as a, you know, engineer or a design engineer, he realized that, you know, we're taking control of people's minds through these these apps and these programs and these phones. And people don't want to think that they're being controlled. And so they don't want to hear it. But the truth is it's getting worse and worse and worse. So what's different about, and he talks about this, what's different about now versus when we were kids and our parents were worried about how much television we watched was that there was no one on the other side of the screen in a television programming for us to continue, like keeping using uh, what it is. So you notice on Instagram there's a bottomless feed. Mm-hmm. just keeps going. You scroll, you scroll, you scroll. It never ends. There's no stopping cues.
2: So that's something that's that's changed. It's not because, a website, it's just a constant kind yeah. of a wheel of content. Yeah. And, yeah.
1: and and so this whole idea they also know based on on the data they collect from you when the best time of day is to to show you how many likes that you've gotten they hold them back and they release them at certain times you don't get l- likes in real time you get them based on your behavior and so they get to know you and you know and it makes it sound like when i say this and when he talks about it he says the same thing you know it sounds so evil like they're they're sitting in these rooms and dark rooms and deciding how well, they're going to no control they to begin with it's all computer driven well,
0: and there's the they, algorithms, but that they, they, they design write. things, right, they design it, but it's not, it's not like, you know, scientists sitting in a room going, oh, she's on the internet right now.
1: Right, right. Well, except that the people programmed it to collect that information. Right. So what, what people like Tristan Harris is, are doing, they just, he just formed an organization called the Center for Humane Technology. And their mission at this point is to, you know, their, their priorities are privacy, um, security, and the mental health of, of children. And so um they partnered with an organization called Common Sense Media and they're focused at a very high level on pressuring the tech companies to make ethical changes to the way that they they program.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. In the UK they had something called the mothering hour, which when television was really taking hold in the UK, they would they would basically the BBC would turn it off. Wow. For an hour. Wow. So that mothers could make dinner and mother their children That's and put so them to bed, and and yeah, wow. and it's kind of a bigger version of that in a way because right. it's going to be much more intricate how if people really do step into uh, ethical responsibility around right. it, how they will solve, you know. Yeah. Well,
1: he he talked about early on. Uh, he his first organization, nonprofit, was called Time Well Spent, and he talked about wanting engineers to take a Hippocratic oath, mm. and that you know he wanted to come up with some. You know, uh, way so that you know engineers could learn, you know what it is that the power that they actually have and what they're dealing with, and um, and so you know they're focused on the big tech companies, they're focused on the government with regulations and trying to get things to change, and that's so important, and I support and follow what they're doing and and talk about it as much as I can. I'm coming in from the ground level. So all those changes are going to happen. But what we're trying to do with little space is we're trying to, in the meantime, give you a sense of feeling connected to something bigger than yourselves. And, you know, when you're away from your phone, because that's the fear, right, that you're going to put it away and you're going to that whole FOMO thing. I'm going to miss something, you know, but this is saying, hey, no, you, you know, Mm -hmm. you can be connected even when you're not connected. Mm -hmm. And give you incentives and give you kind of a way to feel like, oh, well, I'm doing something.
0: So if there are apps that exist already that you just touched on, what makes yours unique? What is the hook that you have, if you will, about what you're doing? uh,
1: We're not doing the monitoring and blocking. Um, So there's apps like like Freedom's a really good one. Um, That one, it it essentially makes it so that you can't access um, the technology that they've created makes it so you can't access your apps and your um the stuff they have a version for their for a laptop and and for a phone um we don't do that ours is all because i believe change comes from the inside so i'm not Trying to be the gatekeeper of how much and how little you use your phone, I'm giving you a timer and letting you decide if you're going to cheat and and use your phone when you're not supposed to be. Um, so we're really kind of the the least invasive solution, I think, that's out there. It's just a way for and. What what we're going to grow into and what we're aiming to expand into is being able to allow people to create groups of their own on our app, so that they can say, "Hey, we're a family, and we want to incentivize ourselves to we're going to go on a family vacation if we all collectively have this many hours unplugged," or you know, "Hey, uh, we're a nonprofit, and we're going to form a group on the Little Space app, and we're going to." you know, raise money for our cause based on how many hours we spend away from our phones. Mm-hmm. So it's similar to kind of when you would see the Avon walk, you know, how many miles you walk means how much uh, money you raise. So it's how much time you spend away from your phone is how much money, you know, or how much support a cause that you care about can get. So that was that's what makes us different. We're a little more social, actually, which is interesting. We're, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's ironic, but it's also we're trying to take the power of the social connection that people feel from technology but turn it on its head and say it's really the time you spend away from your phone the other thing that's interesting is that um you know all these groups that we have on the little space app um so we have groups that are centered around causes we have groups that are centered around activities like meditation and yoga people are asked when they first come on the little space app what is it that you want to do when you're not on your phone and those things show up on your home screen as your favorite so if you put family mindful eating and um you know, uh, hiking, those things show up. And so every time you set your timer through the little space app, you're able to choose a focus that you want to kind of proclaim that you're, that you're focused on while you're away from Mm -hmm. your phone. So it
0: doesn't sound like anything that you're doing in the little space app is punitive.
1: No. Yeah. We're very, it's
0: encouraging and, and, you know, think about what we're talking about. And, you know, if you want to be part of our community, then take the steps to do. So let's talk about how you become part of your community. Um, and what is the benefit? Because you also have a not-for-profit slide to your or, or point of view on what you're working on. So let's talk about that a little
2: bit. Yeah. It's, but it, to to summarize, it's gentle behavior modification. Yes, with yeah. an incentive. Yes, yeah, that's a yes. Little, that's a, I yeah. I love that.
1: Yeah, and it and it not pounding you in the head side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, you know, the reason I chose that is because that's what I see
0: works. Let's talk about what exactly how you become community member of little space and what that means and let's go into exactly what Yeah, you're I
1: mean on. it's real simple. You download the app. It's available for iPhone and for Android and uh it's a free app and so there's not there's no cost to the user. Um and essentially you just you, the onboarding experience asks you uh you know what do you want to focus on when you're not connected to your phone and you can choose from anything from hiking to in meditation, to yoga, to a cause that you care about. Um, and, you know, then you essentially go in and when it's time to go to the gym and you know that you're going to be not using your phone uh, and you want to help a cause that you care about, you set your timer and you put it in your pocket and, and, it, and that's your screensaver. It shows kind of the time that you're going. We also show you how many other people are doing it at the same time. So at any time you can let set the timer and it'll say you're with 100 other people. Um, we intentionally didn't make it based on kind of profiles. We don't show pictures of other people. You don't know the names of other people. You just know you're not alone. Uh, we didn't want you to keep going back and looking, you know, uh-huh. to see who's oh, is my friend, you know, on here. Um, also, oh, we also intentionally didn't update in real time. So when you set your timer, that's the point in time when the timer's set. If there's 60 people with you, that's great, but we don't want you going back and seeing now is there 65, now is there 75. It doesn't update in real right, time. Right, cuz then you're not you're defeating the purpose completely. Of doing this. So where it's interesting, where we have to we have to be thinking about the user experience of getting you less engaged with your phone, which is the polar opposite of what most
2: app developers are trying to figure out, how right. to get you more engaged. Right and when when i am attempting to uh, reach you while you're in this timed out zone yes what message do i get well if you're so if you were to
1: text me mm-hmm. i have an android phone mm-hmm. so i have access to the tool uh, that gives auto reply. Mm-hmm. So ha- if I set my auto reply, you would get a reply back that was my created message, whatever I wanted it to say. When I go to SoulCycle, I put writing at SoulCycle and I use the little emoji of a, of a bike. And so <laughs> someone who texts me gets that automatic text back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's for Android users. Mm-hmm. For iPhone users, you don't get any message. Right. So it's up to you, the user, when you're using the Little Space app to set do not disturb or to uh, silence your phone or, you mm-hmm. know, to do all the things that, mm-hmm. that you would want to do to make it so that you don't get, you know, enticed by your mm-hmm. phone. Because if you're setting the little space timer and your phone's still ringing or you're st- it's still buzzing, it's. I mean, you can do it that way, <laughs> but uh, it's, I don't think you'll have as defeats. pure of an experience. Yeah. And
0: because of your background in being a person who has dedicated so much of your life to doing not-for-profit work, you've added a not-for-profit sort of um, what would the word I would use be sort of bent to this? Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah.
1: So, um, you know, we consider ourselves kind of at the intersection of mindfulness and social impact. So basically, we're trying to help you do good for yourself while you're doing good for others. And the way that works is that some of the groups on the Little Space app are centered around the number of hours as a community that we unplug. And when we reach a certain goal as a community, then a nonprofit will get the uh reward of a donation and the donations have come in the form of there was a um, community center that that has um that you know um serves people that have mental health challenges it's called painted brain and they were in need of laptops so we found low space found uh, a corporate sponsor and that corporate sponsor Agreed to donate three laptops to Painted Brain when our community unplugged for 200 hours together. And that's all tracked on the Little Space app. So, you know, we had a campaign. We basically, through social media and through blogging and through, um, uh, you know, email blasts, we basically tried to get as many people as we could and said, hey, you know what, when you're at the gym, when you're with your family, You know, unplug, use a little space timer. Let's get these hours up because we really want this community Mm -hmm. center to get the the donation Mm -hmm. that they deserve. Mm -hmm. It's Um,
0: amazing when you think about the fact that it's only about 15 years that this has occurred. Yeah. You know, I myself just went away from a flip phone about a year ago. Oh, wow. (laughs) And um, and the only reason I went, it's true. The only reason that I went away from a flip phone was because when people were texting me, on this little tiny phone, and I had to put my glasses on to see what they were saying. Although now I have to put my glasses on for everything, but in those days I only had to put my glasses on for that. I would have to text the back, and it was a manual texting that was, you know, if you wanted to get to the B, you had to go A B, right? You know, and it was annoying. So I finally flipped to a um, an iPhone, right? And it makes it easier. But I am I am not phone addicted, right? But the Almost everybody that I know is. Mm -hmm. So I was so drawn to what you're doing, and then when I started to think about this nonsense that occurred with Facebook recently, yes, and the fact that they didn't protect their community, Mm -hmm. and then I saw Tim Cook from Apple speak about how they protect their community, right? And I thought about what's going on and how these kids are so influenced by this. I, I think what you're doing is incredibly important. It is. Oh. It's an incredibly interesting, and the, and the bias that you have towards also attaching it to a not-for-profit kind of makes it a no-brainer. And why wouldn't everybody at some point in time say, enough? Right. It's enough. Right. We don't need to sleep with our phones on the bed. Yeah. We don't need to have our phones in our hand every minute of every day. We can stop. It's enough. Right. And yeah, so I'm a set 100% the intention. supporter yeah. of the work that you're doing. Thank you. And I think everybody should really listen to the fact that we spend too much time not engaging in real conversation, but engage with our phones, which, right. you know, don't give you any gratification back. But the other thing that's so fascinating to me is the amount of information that we gladly and willingly give away about ourselves. Yeah. And the when I listened to Mark Zuckerberg speaking in front of Congress a couple of weeks back and I was watching him... And I thought that he was so arrogant and so dispassionate about the fact that there's almost nothing that isn't known about you if I wanted to know more about you. Right. And to really investigate you. Yeah. So, you know, we're way too casual about sitting around with our phones and traveling with them everywhere. So I, I fully support the work you're doing. Yeah.
1: And I uh, think it's a wake-up call for everyone because we need to understand that, you know, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg started out, obviously, to, you know, hurt anyone. He was trying to connect people. But I think that what we have to realize is we're not the customers of Facebook. And it's because we don't pay are. for it. Yeah. The advertisers are the customers. We're actually the product. Right. And so to have that sense that that you don't have you know control of your own eyeballs, um, and and that's really what it is because you, I don't know about you guys, but. You know, and you say that maybe you don't because you're not on social media, but there's times where I'm posting something for, for little Space and I start getting caught up in the, you know, and all of a sudden it's just like I'm scrolling and scrolling. And, and then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, I haven't even blow dried my hair
2: yet. It's, like, a, what time it's yeah. a time suck. It's a time suck and it is such an intimate um activity yeah. that you can get completely lost yeah. inside of it. I'm curious about um, when you are able to do the outgoing message, are you going to use that to help sort of proliferate the message of Will Space so that when when a person sees that you're busy, they'll they'll be encouraged to download little space so that they too can Yeah. Escape the clutches of their device.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean this is the fun part about entrepreneurship and doing a, a startup business is that, you know, it's constant, you know test, iterate, test, hmm. iterate, you know, mm-hmm. and so. Um, Perpetual beta. Exactly. So we're constantly making adjustments, um, you know, definitely we will want to put in some kind of um, referral mm-hmm. in, into an auto reply, but you have to be careful because you don't want it to be too long. So people sure. don't, you know, read it. So those are the kinds of things we'll work out. Um, you know, this first version has just the limited features that we could at this stage <clears throat> afford to put in. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're excited about adding in is location services. Because we want people to be able to drive up to their house and for it to say, "Hey, you're almost home. Do you want to set your little space timer so that you can focus on your family?"
2: Yeah, um, love that. You know,
1: or this automated. You know, I don't know if you guys use ways at all, but just this idea that it pops up and says, "You know, I notice. You know, you usually go to yoga. Um, Why aren't you, know, you going to but, yoga? <laughs> you know, uh, do, would you like to set your timer and, and focus on yoga? And you know, it's just ways of using." You know, we talk about data collection and and these apps knowing so much about us, and while that can feel um, intrusive, it can also be really useful, and it can help us enhance healthier behaviors in ourselves. If we choose, that's that's the key, if we choose to participate in it. I'm just
0: telling you right now, I totally support what you're doing. I'm super excited about it. <laughs> yeah. And I really appreciate you coming in and talking to us about this oh, today. thank Would you. Would you please tell our listeners exactly how they can download the
1: app? Yes. Uh, you can go to the App Store on your iPhone, which is a little icon that... Has something that looks like an A, Um, and you just go on and check uh, search for Lil Space L I L S P A C E. You also can go on the Google Play Store, which is the app store for Android phones, and we're also available there. And you just download, create an account really quickly. It's just your email and your name, and uh, then you get on board and and start searching for things that you care about and reasons why you'd want to. Put your phone down.
2: Love it. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. Oh, so you're delightful. You're Thank you for
1: what this a fantastic conversation. fantastic story.
0: Next time, our guest will be Jean Smart, the versatile character actress who's worked on stage and screen but found the bulk of her success on television. After college graduation, she performed in regional theater and made her Broadway debut in the play Piaf portraying the legendary actress Marlena Dietrich. That show jump-started her career by leading to the role of Charlene Fraser on the hit sitcom Designing Women. It was there that she met co-star Richard Gilliland, who became her future husband and to whom she is still married. Smart left that series to try her luck in movies. To avoid being typecast as a comedy actress, she took the role of serial killer Eileen Warnos in the deadly biopic Overkill. She's won three Emmy Awards and has been nominated for and won many SAG, Critics' Choice, and Tony Awards. In addition to playing the president's emotionally unstable wife on the hit TV series 24, she's appeared in diverse roles on series and movies such as Fargo, Frasier, Harry's Law, Sweet Home Alabama, The Accountant, and Bringing Down the House. So join us when she comes to our house as we rewind to the beginning with
2: Gene Smart on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.